Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello. Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. Joanna, we're going to talk about this later, but welcome back from TCA. You've been in Los Angeles for a week. Do you feel the Hollywood blood in your veins? I do. I thought I was going to live in that hotel for the rest of my life, like <laughs> The Shining, but I am back. Well, there is a weird connection between TCA and our first topic for this week is that the uh, Academy has changed the way they'll be announcing the nominations, which come out next week, which is crazy. They'll be announced on January 24th, if you are possibly ready for that. The usual process was having a whole bunch of reporters gather at the Academy headquarters at five o'clock in the morning, and I'll be in the room while the uh, nominations got announced. But that was kind of a vestige of an earlier time. There's no real need to be there in person. So what they're going to do now is have a live stream on their website, on the Academy's digital platforms. I'm reading a report that Rebecca Keegan wrote for us last Friday when this was announced. There'll be a satellite feed. There'll be local broadcasters. So it will still be showing up on the morning shows, but it won't require having a bunch of people gather in the room to do it. They should just announce them on Trump's Twitter. I mean, everyone's watching it already. Yeah, I mean, and then Trump well. can tell us which nominees are overrated. That's right, yeah. overrated. <laughs> well, this is la, presumably la, la, we are going to have Oscars, you know, after the, the inauguration. Yeah, we don't know. Um, <laughs> as but, long as they're not on NBC, I think yeah. he'll be fine <laughs> with that. Right, there you go. Um, but yeah, they're going to be kind of, and they're going to be pre-taped kind of packages with various celebrities. I'm announcing. fascinated by this. Yeah, I mean, because really the, the potential for cheese is high there. Oh know, yeah, hopefully. yeah, they've well, really given themselves a whole new way to screw up. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, although, you know, when you're doing the announcement at five in the morning, that's how you get things like dick poop from a couple years ago. So maybe <laughs> they're exactly going right. to screw up that's less because yeah, I'll be well rested. For achievement in cinematography, the nominees are Dick Poop, Dick Pope for Mr. Turner. You know, the ratings for the Oscars have been slipping kind of steadily for years. And I think they're trying to find a way to engage people early on. You know? Yeah. And they think that, like, rather than watching this staid press conference that feels very static, that this will be a sort of more interactive, engaging way to... I, I'm not, I just feel like people look at the list that people like us frantically type up and then, or, you know, watch it on for five minutes on the Today Show. I don't know. Do you feel like this, Mike, do you think this is going to engage people any more than what they were doing before? No. <laughs> Does it matter? I don't know. I mean, I, this it is... depends what they make poor Brie Larson do. Like, if she has to, like, <laughs> sing and announce them, you know, like, how viral are these videos, you know? We locked Brie Larson in a room for a year. <laughs> With King Kong. To well, what her I, movie, here's Kong. what I worry is every time the Oscars gets, like, creative, it gets really <laughs> self-important, you know? Yeah. Remember, yeah. what was the year uh, where they had the previous winners come out? They made them all stand on oh, the I stage. Oh, Hugh Jackman. Years. Remember yeah. Hugh Jackman was put through that forced march? And so yeah. I just worry there's going to be Brie Larson being like, there's nothing like being an actress when I first, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, 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 if it's, yeah. If it's like. It's so if, early for that. If they're going to make viral videos that are funny and silly, if they're, I don't know, like Geico ads, then that could be amusing. Well, I feel like they're doing it really just to get back at people like me specifically who will be typing up these nominees as fast as possible to post them on VanityFair.com. And I'm going to be like, shut up, Brie Larson. I just want to know who's nominated for Best right. Actor. And <laughs> it's going to you know, extend the process from like a five minute info dump to like half an hour. I have no idea. I really hope there was a meeting at the Academy where they're like, how can we torment Kitty Rich of VanityFair.com? Yeah. Kitty Rich and her, and her ilk. <laughs> 
Um, so, Joanna, you at TCA, you were in the room with a bunch of entertainment reporters of the kind who would be there for the Academy announcement. Do you feel like they're all relieved or is this a kind of a bummer that the tradition's gone? Well, I just wanted to say that I love reading Rebecca's coverage for our site. You know, Rebecca's a fairly new addition to the team and I love reading it because she is a veteran on this beat. And so she has all these fun details like talking about scrambled eggs and chafing dishes at 4 a.m. and this bonding experience of having these nominations announced being in the room and hearing the studios or, you know, PR teams cheer when their nominees get there. And that's a very bonding experience, but it is a very insular experience for the people in the room. And, you know, most of the people in the world will not care one way or another. It's just the people who are in that room missing that bonding experience. I was just relating that to my own experience at the TCA's, the Television Critics Association Winter Press Tour, where you're sort of locked in this hotel with critics and publicists. And it's it's a very, very bonding experience. You eat three meals a day together, you get to know each other really well, but nobody in the outside world really knows it's going on, you know? So yeah. in terms of how the rest of the world will care about this, I don't think they will. But for those for whom it's a tradition, I can see why they're disappointed. Yeah, but it's also, you mean, not to inflate the role of the media, but like you at TCA and the people at the Oscar nominations are the filter through which all this news is brought. If you are right. kind of alienating the people who bring the news to everybody else, like, are you maybe shooting yourself in the foot? I think it's similar to, I mean, it's not to keep bringing up Trump, I'm sorry, but it's similar <laughs> to, you know, for him using his Twitter or for them moving the press conferences possibly out of that traditional briefing yeah. room. Everybody, and Obama did the same thing, is trying to figure out how do they establish a direct connection with their audience and not have to deal with the press because the press is a pain in the neck because the press challenges you and says what are you talking about that's not actually true and you know asks uncomfortable questions yeah so everyone would rather just talk directly to an audience of predisposed fans than have to filter it through us and so that's the battle the ongoing battle yeah and this happened to a certain degree at the TCAs. There was a big outcry because a lot of the network execs who come and give an executive, what's called an executive session at the beginning of every day, a lot of them backed out this year and just decided they didn't want to do it. And like, I was so funny because I was talking to Rebecca. Rebecca, who covers mostly film for us, was amazed that the TCAs exist. She's like, you get network execs to go up and you get to just lob whatever question you want at them. She's <laughs> like, I'd love to do that to a studio head. That would be amazing. We don't get to do that. So, you know, it's possible that the TCAs are maybe going away a little bit because, as you say, Mike, the press is a pain in the ass and they don't want to deal with it. Well, we'll see what happens and how different it is on the morning of the Oscar nominations. We'll be around to talk about them kind of almost in real time. And uh, if we're not completely exhausted or haven't, you know, punched our computer screens into smithereens from being frustrated how long it takes. So (laughs) it's going to be interesting. Do we know that they're not going to also just publish a list usually the list you comes have later. to sit there and transcribe it's, it's such a crazy morning and i'm on the east coast and so at least i have that going for me but you guys will be off in the mountains yeah uh, so it's going to be a little bit earlier in joanna you know you're up at crazy hours for the west coast anyway so hopefully this won't be anything new for you <laughs> but yeah so richard and mike you guys are heading to sundance tomorrow as we record it's this. gonna be an eventful sundance between the inauguration and the oscar nominations both done and announced <clears throat> while people are in the mountains i mean tuesday at Sundance, a lot of people are already back 
you know, in LA or New York at that yeah. point. So it'll be a little less fraught. A lot of people will probably be back because of the Oscar nominations. But but yeah, it should be fun. A lot of years, there's also like a big NFL playoff game. Like I remember one year Harvey Weinstein booked out some restaurant to watch the Giants play on Sunday night, I think. So right. who knows? Yeah. I yeah. know none of us are aware of the NFL schedule, but it, that might be there too. You. But yeah, and I think, you know, the inauguration wise, I'll be in screenings during and I'm plenty happy to be doing that instead of watching. But on Saturday morning, coinciding with the Women's March in Washington, D.C. and the marches in New York and LA and various other cities across the country. There is a march in Park City on Main Street that Chelsea Handler, I believe, helped I organize. Believe so. yeah. 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 so hopefully I can participate in that. And... Yeah, you think you're getting away from politics, but you're just not. Yeah, well, there's no getting away from these politics, sadly. So Richard, since you're going to be there doing the bulk of reviews for us, you're kind of more aware of the schedule than yeah. most of us. What's caught your eye this? I mean, we'll be talking in detail about Sunday next week, yeah, but just we kind will. of a, what should people be excited to hear about? Uh, I have kind of two or three movies that are really high on my list. I think the first one is a movie called Mudbound that is written, I believe, but definitely directed by Dee Rees, who made that movie Pariah a couple years mm-hmm. ago that was a really big hit at Sundance. And and she's a, you know an African-American woman director, and she's been handed the keys to what seems like a big kind of historical epic about a town in Tennessee, I believe, post-World War II. It's a kind of epic about race and property and land. And I don't know, it just feels like I've heard like kind of buzziness about it. So I'm really curious about that. You know, it's not what you think of as typical Sundance Fair and that it's, you know, a kind of period drama, big sprawling kind of piece. But, you know, as last year's Birth of a Nation proved, you know, uh, that there is room for that at Sundance. And so hopefully this one will not be engulfed in scandal. My uh, yeah. my favorite uh, name droppy Sundance story is uh, that one year when I went, the year the Pariah premiered, I shared a shuttle from the Salt Lake City Airport with Eurice's girlfriend at the time. Oh, well, uh, there you go. <laughs> I think we ran into her again at the like end of the festival. Like, hey, it went great. Uh, so that was, that oh, was that's <laughs> what Sundance brings you is that you yes. share weird transportation with all kinds of people. There, there can definitely be a closeness. Um I think on a very different scale or, I don't know, thematic direction, there's a movie called Call Me By Your Name that I'm really curious about, directed by Luca Guadagnino. Sure. Um, and he adapted it from a novel that came out in about 2004, which you guys might not be as aware of as I am because it was sort of like the the whispered about gay book of that year. Hmm. I actually, I think I read it on your recommendation a couple years ago. I went on vacation and was looking for something and you okay. recommended yeah. it. And it's like, it's a great vacation book. Yeah. I mean, it's about a kid, teenage boy in Italy who uh, sort of has a kind of sexual experience with a local girl, but also a slightly older guy. And it's very graphic, but really beautifully written. And Gaudio Nino, who'd made I Am Love and A Bigger Splash, he's got a great visual sensibility. I mean, that feels much more like a can movie. I'm really surprised it's at Sundance, but I'm really curious about that. Also, the kid who stars in it is Timothy Chalamet, who people might know from Homeland. He played Dana Brody's kind of shitty boyfriend who did a hit and run. But he also... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> used to date Madonna's daughter. He's like went to LaGuardia School of the Performing Arts. Um, but he is in a little tiny movie that's just on, on Netflix now called Miss Stevens, star- starring Lily Rabe from American Horror oh, Story. Oh, I love that. It's such a nice movie, and he's fantastic in it. And you watch that movie, and you're like, oh, this kid could actually be something. And so I'm really curious to see if he delivers on that. And the object of his affection is played by Army Hammer, who that's I right. think yeah. uh, I feel like ever since the social network, I keep thinking like that guy needs something better. And like this could I, be uh, Man from Uncle showed him off really well, but didn't do very well. So maybe this is kind of his chance. Yeah, yeah. So those are kind of my two. Although there's also a, t- a Taylor Sheridan. Movie. Um, so the guy who wrote Hell and High Water and Sicario 
is now back with, I guess, what he's calling the closing of his American West or North American trilogy. West tr- trilogy. Yep. <laughs> um, and he actually directed this one, and it's kind of a murder mystery set on a Native American reservation out in the snowy wilderness, and Jeremy Renner's in it, Elizabeth Olsen. So, I mean, he's been on a good run, so yeah. I'm curious to see how he finishes this phase of his... Yeah, he, Every he, Sundance, I remember that Elizabeth Olsen is a person. Oh, yeah. No. yeah. She's yeah. kind of like... She's she in all the Marvel up. movies, though. That's the thing. That's she's true. in there somewhere throwing energy balls. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, she's like a Sundance fixture. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's where she, you know, kind of broke out big mm-hmm. a few years ago. So, yeah, that, that movie's called um, Wind River. So those are the three that I'm really into. Wind River is like ultimate Sundance parody title like of course well when I saw the title I was like oh I'm not gonna that sounds stupid and then I read it I was like the description and I was like oh you know that could be worth seeing so yeah, yeah. it's like the Melissa Leo movie Frozen River uh, a mighty River. wind yeah, <laughs> right. exactly yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike you'll be at Sundance but uh, you know you don't usually see as many movies as Richard you have other stuff to do but is there anything on your radar we should hear about I just want to let our listeners know to expect lots and lots and lots of great stuff we'll be doing video interviews and portraits with all the big stars and one of the fun things about doing this is as films debut and we're reading the reviews and we're hearing the buzz and watching Twitter, we're able to kind of draft people in and yeah. say, oh, let's get those people in here. You know, yep. let's get a picture. Yep. Let's do a video interview. So you can kind of keep up. The coverage will start on Friday. The videos will start rolling out on Saturday. But if you're a film lover... This is great content that we do. Yeah, last year. year the Oscar nominations came out right before Sundance, so we had people talking about the whole Oscar so white controversy as it was yes. bubbling up, and that was really fascinating. So we'll see. Yeah, we may have some, you know, excerpts on the show at some point. Yeah, too. well, you know, there's a few things going on in the news as Richard mentioned, so I think there'll be plenty to talk about. But I love, you know, I actually love the discovery aspect of Sundance. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember. Um, Lots of times just seeing a film that like you never would have thought would be anything and all of a sudden it becomes the talk of the town, you know, literally. Um, And and coming out of last year, it was Birth of a Nation, but also Manchester by the Sea and Boyhood before that. I think Spotlight wasn't in Spotlight. No. Okay, never mind. I knew I was going to screw something up. Brooklyn. (laughs) Brooklyn. 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 The the other movie that I remember when it premiered, we were like, this doesn't seem like a Sundance movie. It's uh, like a Toronto movie. And then it, uh, you know, went all the way to Best Picture nominations. The Lobster. Was it The Lobster? Sundance? No, well, no, it I'm was. I think it was. Wit. <laughs> Stop talking. I feel like the lobster went to Sundance, but only after it was at like Cannes and Toronto. Thank you for yeah. trying to yeah. save me. <laughs> I think that um, yeah, Richard talking about Manchester last year was when it first pinged on my radar. You were so eloquently enthusiastic about it, Richard, that I got. I was so excited for what the eight months that I had to wait until I got to see it. Yeah, the uh, Richard Lawson Sundance recommendation so far has has done really well. So, well, I, I think that we're remembering. With a kind of favorable, the ones that actually stuck. There are a lot of movies I've recommended. Be like, I think this is going to be big. That have not been big, like Goat. Number like Goat. goat. We, <laughs> we both walked out of really? Goat being like big movie. <laughs> I want to give you Kingbreaker, Kingmaker status because I remember you being tapped on Birth of a Nation, yep. and also The Earl and the Dying Girl, both of which did not live up to the insane Sunday's fervor. So you at least have the track record of like, eh. It's okay. Well, we'll right? see. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, but, you know, it's funny talking about like the, the breakouts. Um, I saw a kind of pre-Sundance screening of a movie that's going to be there at the end of last week, and I'm not allowed to say what it was because I'm not supposed to have seen it yet. But there's a kid in it that had me emailing, you know, uh, the people organizing our photo and video studio that night being like, you got to photograph this kid at least because he's like 
possibly a next big thing. And, you know, there could be 10 possibly next big things and only one of them actually pans out eventually. But it is fun. It's like talent scouting, you know. I yeah. think that's one of the cool things about Sundance, whereas it's a bit more ordained at other festivals in a way. So, yeah, I think it's a good lineup this year. And, you know, as ever, the video and photo well, stuff will be great. And, and just one more thing about Sundance before we move on. Yeah. Um, it, it's so much less prepackaged. It's yeah. really v- very little of it is prepackaged. People really come, the whole cast and crew come, they're psyched to be there. Everybody's dressed in their LA versions of cold weather clothes. Right. <laughs> and that's what's fun about it. The whole discovery aspect is fun. And that's why I think some movies that aren't actually that great stand out because you're seeing a lot of rough stuff and a lot sure. of movies that are like nice try but didn't quite work. So when you see something that even just succeeds like at a B plus level, people kind of go bananas. Plus there's the altitude. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot conspiring to kind of make it yeah. this charm. And you're watching it with all everyone who made the film. And you're in this little mountain town kind of stolen right. away from the rest of the world. Yeah, I used to work as a volunteer at Sundance for several years. And, you know, our time was really precious in terms of we were working and then we would cram in as many movies as we could. So the, the stakes on the choices were really high. And so there was like a little volunteer network where you would come back and give a one-sentence review, like not worth it or whatever. And so someone would be like, I saw a man masturbating in the desert and I was bored. And you're like, okay, I'm going to check that off. <laughs> Like, um, that was before they edited Manchester. They, they, they cut right. that scene out. Or they're like, Michelle Williams pees on herself. And we're like, okay, check that off. No, thank you. What so, is that? That's the hawk is dying. Um, Holy so. cow. Joanna, was yeah. it, was anybody famous mean to you when you were a volunteer? That's all I actually care about. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but I will say that you see which jurors are actually working and which aren't. Sarah Polly was a juror. She was at every screening. She was like sitting on the floor of tents eating soup. Like she was in it. Whereas most deaf was a juror and did not show up to a single screening. <gasps> Alexander Payne also did not show up to Ooh, most of his Putting them on notice. Wow. Yep. Yep. Well, wow, I, I, okay. I'd like to mention that most deaf has canceled his appearance on Little Gold Men next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, was that more truth than we were? No. <laughs> I love the image of Sarah Polly sitting on a floor eating soup. That's, it, that's true to form, it, it feels yeah, like. It yeah, it makes 100% sense yeah. for Sarah Polly. So we'll talk lots more about Sundance next week and uh, all of whatever this year's Birth of Nations and or Manchester's by the Sea will be. That was um, a good, I love you pluralized that. Well, Manchester's by, by the sea. Yeah, Attorney's General. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and, you, and what will this year's spotlight be? And the lobster. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we'll look at the Toronto schedule from <laughs> yeah. last year to figure out what those are going to be. And now let's listen to Mike's interview with Matt Ross, the writer and director of Captain Fantastic. And as you might know, Gavin Belson of Silicon Valley, which is kind of the most fascinating double act in Hollywood that I can think of. Mike, you've been beating the drum for Captain Fantastic for months now. You're the biggest supporter of it on this podcast. So I'm excited to hear what you guys talked about. Thank you. Me too. Welcome, Matt Ross, to the show. It's so great to talk to you. I'm a huge fan of Captain Fantastic. Thank you. So, Matt, you grew up in Oregon, which is where this film is set, as I understand it. How personal of a story is this for you? Well, it's 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 the most personal thing I've ever written. The film has certain elements which have have come up for people who've seen them, and and I'll I'll list them. The movie's been out now so a bit, so I hope this isn't a spoiler. But you can see from the trailer that there's a kind of communal living going on or an off-the-grid living. Yes. The film deals with suicide and mental illness, and those were not the reasons I wrote the film. It's mo- it's the most personal film to me because I'm a father, and I really wanted to write about my experience as a father, my aspirations as a father, my failures as a father. So from that perspective, yes, it's intensely personal. I had a lot of questions about being a parent and a lot of questions about being a parent today in the United States specifically, and I wanted to kind of create a narrative where I could ask those questions and, and have a discussion about that in a way. 
And so Viggo Mortensen, the great star, plays Ben, who is a father and who is raising yep. his kids basically off the grid. He and his wife at yep. the beginning are raising the, his kids off the grid. How important was it finding Viggo Mortensen to get this movie made? Because I feel like most people don't understand how financing for independent films works. But am I sure. right that finding somebody who is known, especially around the world, is super crucial in getting a film from script to actually thing that exists and can be watched? Yes, I think that's true. Uh, you know, every year we see many films that start at Sundance and probably deserve uh, far more attention and acclaim than they get. And that's sometimes based on uh, the fact that they don't have a huge star in, in the lead role or in the lead, lead roles. Um, so, yes, that's that's certainly part of the equation. I don't think it's the only equation, uh, a bit of the equation, but it's certainly a huge bit. And for me, uh, aside from the financing of the movie, the lead actor becomes your central collaborator, you know. I mean, oh, well, of course. Okay, so ta- I'm sorry for to start on the cynical place, but I find it interesting. I think people at home understanding how this stuff works. But then Vigo no, gives this incredible sure. performance and, and embodies this character. And so let's talk about that, the physicality of it, the emotional commitment that he has, and how he brings his work to life. Well, every actor has their own process. And I think, you know, one of the many jobs of a director is identifying the different processes of the actors and not just the actor, the DP, everyone, and, and trying to create an environment where that process can live, you know, you don't squash other people's creative needs to do their job. And, you know, Vigo has his own process and it took me a bit to identify it, but we started a conversation way before filming, you know? Yeah. In fact, you're working on the movie months and months and months and months before filming. And I'm not even talking about pre-production. He and I had dialogue back and forth. It starts with discussions, breaking down the script and questions about the script. And then, you know, Vigo specifically likes to, uh, well, he lived in the teepee. He built the garden. You know, I brought him in starting, with the callbacks for the kids, you know, I wanted him to be there and play with some of the kids so that I could, I could not only see what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it, but also I wanted him to have a voice in the casting. These are, this is the, you know, the people that he's going to be playing with. And I think that's, it's really important to bring him into that. Well, that worked Um, out well because the kids are incredible. And it's hard to cast kids. I mean, most of the time it doesn't work and everybody in this movie is so good. Thank you. Uh, That's, that process starts with Jeannie McCarthy, the casting director, and, yeah. and, our, and our and our conversations and her team. And then it, that's just like everything. It's just time and patience. You know, you because of the Internet, I saw kids all from all over the world, you know, sending their tapes. And then we had a very extensive callback process where I played theater games with the kids and Im- did improvisations with them. And and then also when you get there, they have amazing parents. It turns out <laughs> that that has you cast the kids parents as well as the kids and the parents right. really made possible on set certainly i mean you you know we have a legal guardian it's not like you know there's there's certain rules that you follow but the parents have also a, a behind the scenes contribution that can't be ignored so in addition to working with great great you know well-known actors like uh, Viggo mortensen and katherine hahn and steve zahn you do have all these kids and and i wonder many of whom have not been in you know major films before and i wonder as an actor yourself how do you approach directing and mentoring young actors? How do you approach that to get the best result and make sure they have a good experience? Well, I think my my first and foremost is probably a philosophical one, which is just this idea that the actors are not required to deliver any kind of performance between action and cut. You know, it's not a play. I say this all the time, but I, I really believe it. I try and create an environment where there is no right and there is no wrong, and it's all about excavation and 
exploration in front of the camera. We're rehearsing in front of the camera. And yeah. that means you can stop and start. You can say your line 50 times to get into the pocket of whatever you're hoping to achieve. Sometimes with the younger ones who have never acted before, I would just put a camera on them and talk to them and, and try different readings and energies and ways of achieving the objectives of the scene or the, you know, the moment. You know, you can't expect kids who are certainly who aren't professional to deliver their line in the moment, in the pocket. You know, that's a jazz term, right? We talk about, you know, hitting, getting it in the pocket. And when actors are flowing, uh, it is like a play. Like it's, it, it's a ping pong match of back and forth and they're kind of flowing. But you can't expect a child to, to achieve that, someone who's never acted before. So sometimes you have to break down the mechanics. And uh, I do that. I mean, I also, I like to not have marks on the floor and I, I like to really give them freedom. And it's very challenging, you know, for the crew. And I don't always do that. It depends on the situation. But so that that's the first and foremost. And then after that, well, actually, there's no after that. That's, the <laughs> that's <whole thing>. it. <laughs> that's it. I, I mean, I was going to say that it's, you know, that takes time that, yeah. to, to achieve. That takes time because, sure. you know, production is all about getting it done. This this idea of getting it done. You know, did you get it? Did we get it? Can we move on? Did you get it? Yeah. And there's very little time for what is this about? What are all the things it could be? Because really, you're collecting material to go into the edit, and whatever you think you're going to achieve in the edit, or whatever you think the scene is about, frequently is about other things. Meaning, this scene is a placeholder narratively for a certain idea that you're constructing overall for the overall narrative. And sometimes you go into the edit and you realize, you know what, we don't need that moment here because we have the moment before the scene and the moment after the scene. What we need is something else. And if you've if you've explored with the actors all the possibilities, sometimes you have that. Yeah. As an actor who is a director or director who is an actor, you're maybe more alive to that idea that something that happens spontaneously could be important and worth capturing in the film versus somebody who comes in as an auteur and it's like, this all has to be exactly how I planned it out. Perhaps, perhaps. But, I, you know, I think for me, you know, we are all not... Um uh, we, people's perceptions of us are frequently inaccurate. And the perception of me is that I'm an actor transitioning to be a director, where in fact, the real truth is I started making short films when I was 11 and 12 years old and writing them. And yeah. I didn't start acting until later. And then, you know, I, I went to theater school and I went to film school briefly and I've been making short films my whole life and I made another film. So this is the biggest one I've made. So certainly people sometimes, oh, I know him as an actor now he's a director. So I, I don't know that 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 the the essence is that I'm approaching it entirely as an actor. I think but it's more of a philosophical uh, idea. I actually feel that way about all aspects of the filmmaking team. Yeah. You know, I feel that, that should be true with the costume and with the production design and with um the camera department, you know, it's, it's, it's all adjusting. It's all, it's this idea that, that what we're doing is a living, breathing thing. And we all have to continually adjust to what the film is becoming. And that changes on an hourly basis. No, absolutely. I, I totally understand that. You know, I, I think that a lot of our listeners are probably, you know, looking for their way to get to where you are, which is you've had two films at Sundance. You've got a film that's got awards buzz. You know, right, you've right, got a big right. star. How many scripts would you say you've written in your life? Mm. Is this like 10? Is this 40? Is this three? That's an excellent question. I would say this is probably closer to 20, you yeah, know? Yeah. I would say it's somewhere in there. But that's also counting maybe some utter failures and some you know, ones that I did a first draft of and realized, you know, it, I don't love this story enough to continue digging or, or restructuring it. It's funny because when you first start making films as a child, you actually don't, I never wrote the screenplays. It's more like, okay, you stand here and then you do this. And, right. you know, and then it's only really when I was in high school that I start writing and I wrote fiction first and then I started writing screenplays. So 
I taught myself largely. And, you know, when you do that and you're really fumbling around in the dark for a while and, and a lot of the beginning ones are just, uh, you know, tragic, tragic, uh, aborted, <laughs> uh, you know, you got to put in your, your 5,000 hours, you know, that's yeah, it, right? Well, exactly. Actually 10,000 hours, 10,000 hours. But it's such an assured screenplay. I mean, it, it really is beautiful. And and I know that you're not an actor first, but you are known for playing Gavin Belson oh, on, on Silicon absolutely. Valley. And I'm curious, you know, the critique that Silicon Valley has in some ways is reminiscent to me of the critique of our society that that um, yes. Captain Fantastic has. At some yes. level, it's questioning this kind of techno-utopianism. Absolutely. Do you agree with that? Is that something that you feel in your daily life? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I wrote this before I was involved with Silicon Valley, and I think my critique of technology was through the lens of parenting, right? You know, or, yeah. or, or critique or, or questioning, you know, what is this? How, how do we grapple with this for ourselves, but mainly for our kids? And how do we help them? And I think Silicon Valley is doing it in a larger, it's not just through parenting. So yeah, I was, it's certainly something that that's relevant to me. I mean, you know, all you have to do is go outside and look around and everyone is looking down at their phone and yeah. you start thinking about, wow, what is, this is really, ch- this has been a sea change in our culture. Yes. It almost reminds me of like smoking, you know, where everybody just smoked their heads off in the 50s, 40s and 50s. And then it was like, wait a minute, let's maybe cut back on this. People used to smoke in planes. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine (laughs) a plane for 12 hours or something? I mean, that's just insanity. You know, look, I think these things, unlike smoking, which is not a tool, but technology, these are tools and it's really about how we use them. And my joke about it is always, I say, you know, a knife is a tool and I can cut an apple with it, which is a pretty good use of that tool. Or I can slit your throat, which is a terrible use of that tool. Right, right. So, you know, they're tools. Well, congratulations on the film. Is there anything you can tell us about what you're working on next? I have been writing three scripts that I would hope to direct. The one that sucks the least, that's what I say. <laughs> and they're all wildly different genres and wildly different stories. And I just had three ideas and I wanted to try and work them out. So... Yeah, hopefully we won't be having the same conversation in a year from now. <laughs> All right. Well, that's great to hear that that you've got a few things cooking. So we'll look forward to that. And good luck with the rest of award season. It was great to see Vigo uh, yes. out there for the Thank Globes. You. I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. So now we're going to go big before we go home and uh, respond to a listener request on Twitter. Maddie Ada asked, can y'all talk about the best song category again? Because I need to know if Sing Street has a chance, which I understand. No, impulse. Uh, <laughs> it's well, so good, though. It's so good. Is it? It's a five wide. Oh, did you not like it? I liked it. I did like it, but I I saw it at Sundance at the premiere. It was I left and I was like, I didn't feel cold. You know, it was like I felt warmed (laughs) Uh and cheered. Uh And then the more I thought about, it, I was like, wait a second. Sing live on stage. They did. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. They Boy. they handed up. They they did. No, it's a sweet movie. I think that that Wait a um, second, what? What wait a second, what? But I just the more I thought about it, there's something kind of synthetic about it, and I don't think it earns its big dramatic ending at all. Wow, you have let me and Joanna mean where rave they die at the end? My- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's it, it, it turns into the perfect storm. It's a joke for people who've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, no, I, I think John Carney himself said he wasn't sure about the ending of that film. So like and I kinda agree with Richard. I like I like the movie a lot. Uh, I like the performances a lot. I like the music a lot. But I think that ending is kind of not his yeah. not his finest yeah. work. And that's my, that was my only negative feeling about it. I think otherwise it's really charming. And the music is great. 
Weren't so, you also a defender of Begin Again? Am I remembering this incorrectly? I am a, a defender of Begin Again. Yeah, John yeah. Carney's um, movie uh-huh. After Once, which I also love. I mean, he's so. made the same movie three times. Yes, exactly. Whatever. Like, that's <laughs> it's fine. a good movie. Yeah. yeah, it's a good film. He makes yeah. the film, film that I like. You have to film. call it a film. It's a film. <laughs> okay, so I, maybe in any other year, Sing Street, this cute original musical would be like once and would kind of be the darling yeah. of the original song category. But uh, this year, there are two kind of giant gorillas in the category, which are La La Land and Limo Al Miranda. And I think the last time we talked about this, we all agreed that Limo Al Miranda was going to eat and win for Moana. Do any of us think that's going to happen now? After what happened at the Globes, I'm worried that La La Land is going to come and... Just because it is more of a musical than even this Disney musical. Also, there, and this is just me being a crazy conspiracy theorist, but inside baseball stuff. So the guys who wrote the lyrics for La La Land... Pasek and Paul. Pasek and Paul have a hit musical on Broadway right now called Dear Evan Hansen. The star of Dear Evan Hansen is a guy named Ben Platt, mm-hmm. whose father... Benji from it, Pitch Perfect. Right, yes. Whose father is Mark Platt, a producer who produced La La Land. So there's a lot of kind of <laughs> incestuous Wait, things. So you what think does this mean? Throwing, you think Moana is throwing the race? I think that there will be a concerted effort to get the Oscar for Pasek and Paul to promote the Broadway show, uh-huh. and Platt as a producer on the La La Land with his son in Dear Evan Hansen has a vested interest in doing that in a big way. So I don't know. Dear Evan Hansen is a hit. Does it need this? Or well, are but, people just so crazy uh, sure. that I mean, do what it, anything it, it takes? It doesn't not need it. I mean, it wouldn't hurt. Can one producer on La La Land actually throw the entire best song race? And would anyone? It seems a little. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know. He, I like the creativity. I think. Listen, I don't know. Let's. We, I, we live I, in an age I of flawed the paranoia. Yeah. I feel like the more no. we discuss the crazy people who run these Oscar campaigns, the more we convince ourselves and our listeners that anything yeah. is possible right. behind the scenes. Anything possible. is possible. Just look at the Golden Globes. Do we feel like we know what the five are that are going to be? Well, nominated? okay. So this is what I was going to talk about with Sing having a chance I think La La Land will probably have two songs uh, I'm looking at Gold Derby most people are uh, putting it on City of Stars and uh, the audition song that Emma Stone does at the end of the film which we've been talking about for months as kind of the big stand up moment Moana will definitely get nominated for How Far I Go that's the song they're yeah. putting all their energy behind I feel like the Trolls song is probably getting in there because it was like Timberlake yeah and it was a, a great song and it was Mom. a hit no it's a bad song <laughs> come on have you been to a gym in the last you know it 12 months it is everywhere oh <laughs> No, I mean, I'm just saying, it's fun. (laughs) And then after that, I feel like there's a fifth slot that could go to Pharrell's song from Hidden Figures. There's the the Sia song for, I think, no, Shakira song from Zootopia? Well, Sia wrote it and Shakira performed it. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah, Try Everything. That's a sweet song. I I love that song. If you want to go for like a gym song, like Get Your Heart Rate Up, I think Try Everything from Zootopia is much better than Justin Timberlake's. But they want Justin Timberlake for those Oscars. Yeah, Justin Timberlake is going to, I feel like that's what going to get the nomination just because they want Timberlake to come and I, I really hate those nominations so maybe I'm thinking more in terms of Golden Globes but also, like I have to while we're talking about what we hate about this category <laughs> I kind of hate when it's a song that's over the final credits oh I, yeah I definitely I much prefer for it to be integrated well but they do movie. have rules about that now where it does have to play in a certain portion of the actual the f- film it has to be like the first song in the credits I think is that or does right it have to be in the actual I think film? it has to play in the actual film but um well I mean looking at this like the run in the Pharrell song from Hidden Figures definitely plays in the middle of the film and I haven't seen Trolls but I assume it shows up in there somewhere it's just playing the whole time <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's like a yeah. video game yeah, from yeah, the 80s yeah, it's horrifying <laughs> Uh, try everything in Zootopia. That appears in kind of a big sequence. It's so good. I cried when it. Yeah, yeah. it's a toward the beginning. So yeah. I mean, there's like there's so there's definitely um, a lot of incorporation there, but it, it does feel to me like there's four kind of locks and then a fifth slot that could go to Sing Street. It could go to Zootopia. A yeah. lot of people think a song from Sing. Did you see Sing, Richard? 
No, no, you guys couldn't make me do that. <laughs> well, my seven-year-old, my cousin's daughter, really loved it. Mm. We spent a lot of time talking about the plot. If, what know, is the plot? It, it, it's just it's American Idol, isn't it? Basically, yeah, so I guess. I <laughs> couldn't it be t- potentially be two songs from one movie? Isn't, yeah, well, I think happened. La La Land's going to get two for sure. Right, yeah. Yeah, so Moana could Moana get a second one maybe? Sure, yeah. I mean, oh, what, what would what would your second one be from that? Uh, the the Rocks big song or the... Maybe. The one that Lynn, the one that Lynn sings on. So oh, yeah. Um, we know the way. That's a good, that's a good yeah. song. Yeah. Um, just give it to Hamilton. I'm not going to waste my shot. But in terms of the Lin-Manuel EGOT thing, if he doesn't EGOT at these Oscars guys who wrote the lyrics for La Land, if they win and they're almost assuredly going to win a Tony, they'll be halfway there in Ooh. one season. They're going to lap him. He's not going to eat until Hamilton, they make a Hamilton right. movie. Well, he got his Grammy and Emmy and Tony all last year, right? Was it all last year? I don't remember. Yeah. I feel is, like, he writing, is he writing original music for the Mary Poppins? I hope so. Music? I mean, yeah. if he does not get his Oscar this time, it will and certainly happen. And he's writing happen. music for The Little Mermaid, the Disney, the live-action yeah. Little Mermaid. I'm not worried about Limoa Miranda yeah. or Pesek and Paul for that matter. Do Emma... And or Ryan get an Oscar if they sing the song. That no, wins? no. Yeah, so no. they're not going to be like in some blood feud cage match over this. No, oh, I bet they'll support we can, one another. We can imagine that if we want to. <laughs> um, and let's God, remember they, that the they best can't make Ryan sing that live at the Oscars. He needs all the like auto tune help. He can I think get. they got to just they got to just get somebody else to do that song. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm John Legend. Yeah. Yeah, John Legend. <laughs> he's right there. Maybe yeah. who should have sang it in the first place. <laughs> no, John but. Legend with the drum machine and backup dancers. Mm-hmm. So let's just remember that the best original song category is the one that can be totally insane, including the year that one uh, nominee got disqualified because they had legally campaigned for it. There are weird nominations that happen in this category basically every year. So I, just, I don't want to rule out really anything. That I mean, I think we know which ones are definitely getting in, but in terms of that fifth slot, I really feel like anything's possible. Never forget that it's hard out here for a pimp one. So yeah, just also a that. fine piece of music. Um, <laughs> it's just nice that since last year's nominees were pretty much all bad, like the Sam Smith song one, which I feel like we should remember, and everyone was rooting for the Lady Gaga song, which was also terrible. Uh, so the fact that there's good songs that people remember in the race this year is a uh, good step forward. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to predict, I think that City of Stars wins. Joanna, what about you? Yeah, he's right. <laughs> I'm going to say that the slightly more diverse Academy comes in here and goes for Lin-Manuel. Hmm. I don't really necessarily think that will happen, but I think it could happen. Well, I do think there's a vote splitting that could happen on La La Land because yeah. the Emma Stone song, which I cannot remember a single note of, but I know that it is memorable. I remember her performance, and I feel like that is the song that people root for more it's than City of Stars. when she busts into a full-throated Here's yeah, the ones who dream, voice. Katie. Come yeah, on. and that's the whole message of the movie. So the, you know, La La Land could split its vote and give it to Lin-Manuel, because I was going to say that the audition song would be the one that would win for La La Land. So now I'm kind of... Confused. Which one won the Globe? City, City of Stars. Stars. Okay, so yeah. maybe they're like really rallying. It's their just an earworm. That. Is the that's yeah. why? Yeah, that's really the thing about it. But see, the thing from La La Land that I get stuck in my head is what's in the trailer and on the TV. Da 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 da. Like they don't mm-hmm. use City of Stars. I don't know. No, you guys are do. probably right. They're, they use they, City of Stars they, in the first they trailers. Constantly playing <laughs> City of Stars throughout the entire movie. Yeah, when I go to the gym, it's just all. <laughs> no, no, no. In the movie, yeah, no, and then and at the gym, yeah. and somehow it's on the troll soundtrack too. It's weird. Yeah. yeah. If they get Ali'i, uh, I can't remember her last name, Kravalik, I think, who played Moana, who's like sixteen and super. They cute. get her to sing that song. I mean. The voting has already happened by the time they perform at the Oscars, but you know she has the potential to, in addition to the whole Lynn thing, we'll talk about this more in the future. But the use of kids in in Oscar campaigning, like she's she's very charming. Sunny Pawar is just really taking all of her 
energy. She's got to step it up. Well, Sonny has Harvey behind him. And he I'm is, telling you, I met Sonny. Oh he my is God, a you did? secret weapon. Oh, that kid so is cute. so awesome and tiny. Yeah. But and not, so, but not yeah. just secret, right? Because Rebecca's report from the Globes is that Harvey was coaching Sonny on his presentation thing that he did with Dev, like at the table. Yeah, and so then he Harvey took a nap. knows that this is his best chance. No, this kid is a total weapon. Yeah, he's so tiny and Dev Patel is so tall. And they yes. just did the two of them together. Yeah. It's and he's with his dad, you know, yeah. and they don't, they're not super fluent in Native English. Native English speakers, yeah. So it's kind of, I don't know, it's incredibly charming. All right, to well, meet unfortunately, they didn't get Sonny Pawar to sing a song in the Lion soundtrack, though they probably should have. They should have. <laughs> Would have been. <laughs> care if Get Lin Manuel. Why didn't Harvey think of that? Uh, get Lin Manuel to write a song for Sonny. He's figuring something out as uh-huh. we speak. All right, so I'm going to go with Mike. I think maybe Lin Manuel Miranda still wins it just because La La Land might split its vote. Just, yeah. just let's just keep it, it interesting. Happen. I, yeah. I kind of am interested in the idea of the Academy looking at this year's Globes as there's a few things that need to be corrected. Mm. I don't know. So you're saying Aaron Taylor Johnson isn't winning the Oscar? I think that's kind of what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I think that that there is a limit to Globes momentum since the Globes are handed out by 80 random people. Yeah, and the Academy is handed out by 7,000 yeah. people in the industry. And and, and, and way they've more made of a them. bunch of efforts to get yeah. younger, diverse people in there. So mm-hmm. I think there's you know, but it'll be interesting though. I mean. None. I'm not going to bring up Trump again. I just think it's just the <laughs> dynamic is it's hard to figure how it's going to affect I everything. Know, I know. Is and are people going to be in a rebellious mood? Or are they going to be in a like, let's hunker down and give it all to the anodyne musical? Not well, that it's anodyne, but you know what I mean? It's not as confrontational as some of the other stuff. And as I think Mark Harris was pointing out on Twitter, a lot of the new people who've been added to the Academy are international directors or people who from other countries or filmmakers from you know places that aren't inside Hollywood. So that could really dampen the whole idea that the Oscars just love movies about Hollywood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really interesting. We'll be talking about it next week. Could be um, L for Best Picture. Hey. I want to hear Isabella Huppert say trolls. <laughs> so I hope <laughs> she presents the, car- the, pr- the award anyway. I hope there's a whole short film about Isabella Huppert saying yeah. trolls. Yeah. There's, well, we should we- bring in some alt-right people for that film. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. That's it for this week's <laughs> podcast. Uh, safe travels to Sundance. Richard and Mike uh, we will be back Thank next you. week talking about so much stuff. Um, in the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, talking about Oscar season and everything else. We're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men, where we're so happy to hear from you guys. Please keep talking. I loved all the responses to our interview with Andrew Garfield. We loved him as much as you all did. Uh, more. Yeah, probably more. Jealous. Yeah, Joanna, you got to see a lot of stars at CCA, so we can't be... Uh... That's true. I saw Luke Perry walking a dog down a hotel hallway. So Wow. One Last for the memoir. Detail. <laughs> okay, find us all on Twitter talking about maybe Luke Perry's dog. I'm at Katie Rich, Richard. Rylaws. Joanna. Joe Rothis. And Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. This episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner, and thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best possible advice to our incoming president goes to Mike Hogan. Stop talking. <laughs>